Welcome, Calvary Quaker Town, and happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. It's great to have you join us, and you're looking forward, hopefully, to a big celebration today. We're in a series that we're calling What Jesus Started, and we're looking at a few passages from John, trying to see what Jesus got going that then he wants us to continue going. And I thought since it was Father's Day today, we would have a vocabulary lesson. You dads excited? Here's why that's important. Have you ever realized that the more words you have for something, the better you can see it, the better you can understand it, and then the better you can communicate it? Uh, Let me give you an example. I'm not sure how this happened. I was sitting at my computer a few days ago going through something, and all of a sudden, this ad, or what I guess they didn't know who they were sending it to, uh, this thing came up. And it mentioned how many different kinds of saws there are. Like you saw wood, you know? And so it was kind of amazing. Do you know there are over 49 different kinds of saws? Before I looked, I'm thinking, well, I know three. I got a hacksaw, a chainsaw, and a saw. That's all I got. So I had to go to the website. So let let me enlighten you. I won't read all 49, but let, let me read a couple of these things, see if you know what they are. A bow saw a fret saw, a veneer saw, a coping saw, a keyhole saw, a bone saw, that's gross, a wire saw, a scroll saw, a compound miter saw, an oscillating saw, a chain beam saw, a straight flush saw, a toe kick saw, a biscuit joiner, and a domino joiner. Now, here's the point of all that. I don't own any of them, but the more words you have for something, the better you can see it. The more words you have for something, the better you can understand it, and the more words you have for something, the better you can communicate it. You see things in more detail. You understand some of the nuance, and in your mind, it's clearer, and then you can clarify it with other people. Now, here's why that's important. We're talking about what Jesus started. Well, How many words do you have for Jesus, for what he started? The more words you have, the better you understand who he is and what he started. The more words you have, the better you understand who he is and what he started. The more words you have for Jesus and what he started, the better you'll be able to communicate that. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at a passage and tease out four vocabulary words. A couple times in this series, we've said, Jesus makes the pictures realities. He takes the external pictures that we read about in the Old Testament and he makes them realities, the internal realities that the pictures were pointing to. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6 and I'm going to read a passage that we're going to tease out some vocabulary from, but I'm going to warn you right up front. Not one of our vocabulary words appears in the passage. Some of you think, yeah, this is going to be a great sermon, right? Uh, None of the words appear. Yeah, but remember, pictures becoming realities. What happens in the passage, we see the pictures, and we can add vocabulary to how the pictures become realities. 
This is the passage where Jesus walks on water. It appears in Matthew and Mark as well, but we're going to read the uh, John version. So if you have your Bibles, John 6, beginning in verse 16, uh, let's read this passage and see if we can learn some vocabulary. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went out and went down to the lake where they got in a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. That's kind of an interesting account. All right, so here, here are four words. The first word is sovereign. Now, I know you probably heard that word, particularly if you hang around church, you went to Sunday school, whatever, you're in a small group. Sovereign. The word sovereign means all-powerful. The word sovereign means highest status. So in a country with a king or a queen, they are called sovereign. They have the highest status. But the word underneath the status idea is power. Jesus walks on the water to the boat. That obviously is demonstrating power, power over the elements, power over the waves, over the wind. But you know, if you understand something about the historical context, you understand it's a bigger deal than that. You see, in the ancient world, the sea, whether it was the ocean or the Mediterranean, the Sea of Galilee, the sea was the place of chaos. The sea was the place of danger. The sea was uncontrollable. Now, I know periodically it'll happen on land. If you're kind of walking down the street or whatever, particularly if you live on the West Coast, walking along, you know, the ground will begin to rumble and maybe it'll open up and swallow a building or a person in. That happens regularly on the sea. Haven't you ever seen dangerous catch? I mean, it's chaotic. It's uncontrollable. It's dangerous. That's what the sea means. That's why when you read, for example, in the book of Revelation, right? John also wrote that. It says in heaven, there is no more sea. Now, that doesn't mean there's no water there. What that means is there is now no chaos. There is now no danger. There is no dread. There is no death, right? It's a picture. Jesus walks on the chaos. Jesus controls the uncontrollable. Jesus is not afraid, and Jesus is not put off by the dread. And remember, it's not a calm, placid sea. It's a raging storm. He's not walking on the smooth sea. He is strolling through the hurricane. And he's just walking out, not a care in the world, right? Jesus is sovereign, where the sea is chaotic and dark and dangerous, full of dread and doom and death. Jesus has control over all of those things. 
he walks on the sea to the disciples that are in the boat. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, here's what I thought about a couple of times this week, and I'm not sure if you fit into one. My guess is you fit into one of these two categories. You may be here this morning, and you're kind of sailing and living on really smooth seas, right? Kind of like the old beer commercial. You say, it really doesn't get any better than this. Smooth seas. Now, here's the danger. If you're on smooth seas, the danger is to begin to think that you're sovereign, to begin to think that you're in control, right? And we do that in, you know, kind of weird ways. We, we do that in ways like this. You know, life's going pretty well, and I'm living with lots of discipline and wisdom. And you look over there and see people living in chaos. That's because they're undisciplined. That's because they're stupid. That's because they don't follow, Right? You begin to think that somehow you're the one in control. You're the one who's sovereign. And because of your intellect, because of your skill, because of your discipline, because of that you're able to live and calm the seas in your life. What an illusion that is, right? Others of you are here this morning and you're living on stormy seas, right? I mean, the waves are crashing. The wind is blowing. You're not tempted to think that you're in control. You know you're not. You know that you're not sovereign. But here's a point on the application from Jesus being sovereign. He's not put off by the storm the disciples were in, and he's not put off surprised or shocked by the storm you're in. And just like he walked on the storm to the disciples, he can stroll through the storm to you. And just like he delivered them safely to the shore, he can deliver you safely to the shore. We're not sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. An important vocabulary word. But not just a word that says Jesus is above, above, beyond, beyond. Jesus is different. Yeah, you've never met anybody like this before. Mere mortals can't walk on the sea. No, we can't control the circumstances of life, but Jesus does control them. He is sovereign, completely in control, all-powerful. Don't live the illusion that somehow you're in control. Look to Jesus, the one who is in control. Follow him. Look to him, whether you're on smooth seas or stormy seas, and trust that he's the one to get you to the shore. Don't trust your own wisdom. Well, the second word, a little different. It doesn't appear in the passage either, but you'll see the demonstration of it. It's the word deity. Now, I know you may have heard that word. Before. The word deity just means divine, right? Jesus is God. That's what it means. We talk about the Trinity, right? One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. That's the idea. Now, how does that show up in the passage? It shows up like this. What Jesus does, walking on the water, strolling through the storm to get the disciples on, the, that's one thing. But what he says is more shocking than what he does. He shows up and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. That's not really what he says, though. What he really says is the shocking part. Jesus shows up. Now remember, the boat is popping, you know, like a cork on the sea, right? The winds are blowing. The disciples, many of them are fishermen, scared to death on the sea that they're going to drown. Jesus walks up to the boat, and the first thing he says is, I am. 
You are what? Well, yeah, here's the point. Now, I know some people will say, well, Jesus is just saying, it's me. And that is how you would say it's me. But remember, in John's gospel, he listed seven I am's. Remember, we talked about those in the last series. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Right? Jesus, the first I am in John's gospel is not one of those that has a predicate. It's not I'm bread, I'm gate, I'm door. No, no, no. The first I am is in John chapter 6 when he shows up to the disciples in the boat and he doesn't put anything after the I am. He just says, I am. Now, where do you think he got that idea? I'll tell you where he got that idea. Thousands of years before that, God appeared before Moses in a burning bush. Moses is in the desert. And God's calling Moses. There were Moses being called to go back into Egypt and serve as the deliverer to bring the Israelites out. So Moses at the burning bush. Moses is afraid, right? He was in Egypt. They threw him out. He was running for his life. And he says, okay, Moses, go back. You be the deliverer. Lead him out. And Moses says, well... When I tell the people I'm here to free them, I mean, you know, Pharaoh, I'm talking to Pharaoh, and he's kind of in my face. And suppose they say, who sent you? What's your name? And God says to Moses, I am. Just tell them, I am sent you. He's dependent on no one or nothing. Self-existent in and of himself. God. That's who he is. Jesus shows up strolling through the storm to the side of the boat. The disciples are scared to death. And the first thing he says is, I am. Seven other I am's will come later in the book. The first one is, I am. And if not at that moment, certainly after that, John and the others would have thought, yeah, I kind of heard that before. At the beginning of the book, we hear an I am too. Well, how do we apply that? Well, if Jesus is God, then Jesus is the author, right? He kind of got this whole deal started. Therefore, he knows how it should go. I was thinking about that. A couple of weeks ago, we went to the Bronx Zoo. Don't ask me why, that's a whole different story, and if I'll tell you it all, I'll get in trouble. But we went to the Bronx Zoo. Now, my phone doesn't really hold a charge that much anymore, and I didn't have a charge cord in the car, and so I didn't want to kind of get waves on the phone, because then I wouldn't have a battery on, obviously, and it was an important car, I couldn't get it. But I've got an older car that has navigation. I'm driving, so I'm not going to, it's too long to type it all in anyway, but I've got a button that you can talk to the car, right? Ever, you ever seen this, right? So I'm... I've tried it a couple times, it's never worked real well, and it didn't work well that day either. But, but here's how it goes. I hit the little button, a voice comes on and says, state your direction, or something like that. I said, navigation. The voice then said, destination. I then said, Bronx Zoo. The voice then said, state your destination. I then said a little more loudly, the Bronx Zoo, state your destination. I got like a hard of hearing kind of thing or what? 
Well, so this went on for like a few minutes till finally I said, you know what, use Waze on your phone. Once I get over the GW Bridge, how do we get to the Bronx? And we kind of got there, but we didn't use the navigation from the car. Now, here's the point of that. It's not that Charles is an idiot. That, that's another question. Um, here's the point. The authors of the navigation system determine the rules for the navigation system. And I think I figured it out since then. After she asked for the destination, you first have to give a state, then a city, then an address or a point of interest. You can't start with the Bronx Zoo. You got to start with New York. Well, I don't like that idea, but I don't, they, the machine doesn't care if I don't like that idea. The authors of the navigation system said, this is how it works. Here's the point of the fact that Jesus is God. It doesn't matter how you think life should go. It doesn't matter what you think should happen. It doesn't matter that you write the script for your life. What matters is he's the author. Therefore, he's the authority. And the wisest thing we can do is to get in step with what the author has said. He's the author. He's allowed to write the script as he has written it. We then must live in step with it or life won't work. The boat will probably go down and you'll never reach shore. Jesus is God. He is authority. He's the author. And he's all power. Well, the next word, another kind of familiar word, but the word holy. Now, I say, when I say the word holy, you think of church, right? And you think maybe of, you know, glowing images, pictures in your mind from the Old Testament, you know, some biblical movie you saw before. But you know, Well, you know, the word holy probably has shades of all of those different meanings. The word holy essentially means different, but not different, just a little different, like exponentially different. So it means there is no one else like this. There is no equal to this. Jesus, holy. Not just moral, but beautiful and wonderful and all-powerful. All that rolled together. In some ways, the word holy is a synonym for God, right? Holiness, completely different. You don't measure up. You can't measure up. Have you ever noticed that we tend to hang out with people that are kind of like us, right? They're not like super superior and they're not super inferior. You ever notice that? Like, for example, pick a sport that you play. My guess is you play that sport with people that are kind of in your league, right? So if you're a golfer and you're like a 15 handicap, you don't play with all the scratch golfers. They don't want to play with you. And if you're super brilliant, you don't hang out with people that aren't brilliant. And if you're really gorgeous, you don't hang out with people that aren't. We won't say the odd people that aren't. Here's another way to look at it. Do you remember the curve breakers in school? Oh, you love those guys, right? All of you and your friends, you're bumping along, you know, getting C's. How did you feel about the student that like aced every darn test, right? I know how you felt. You hated that person, right? But there was kind of an ambivalence to the hatred. You hated the person because they broke the curve. And if the teacher was going to grade it on a curve, all the C's would become A's. You'd all make it, right? 
But with the curve breaker, the C's going to stay a C. The A gets an A and you all get, yeah. Holy means it's not just an A. It's like an exponential A. Above, above, beyond, beyond, out of sight. Holy. We associate with people that are kind of like us. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He's not like them. They're in a boat floating on the storm, scared to death. Jesus strolls through the storm. Through the boat. He's different. Another example from Peter's life. One day, Peter is one of Jesus' first encounters with Peter. Peter's out fishing. Fishes all night, never catches anything, right? Next morning, Jesus shows up. Jesus asks if he could use Peter's boat to preach. He preaches from the boat. He then says to Peter, Peter, let's go fishing. Peter says, I've been fishing all night. You're like a preacher. What do you know about fishing, right? They go fishing. Jesus, oh, here looks like a good spot. Throw down the net. The net is so full of fish, they can barely pull it into the boat. Now, do you remember what Peter says? Peter does not say, Jesus, you and I should go into business together. Peter says, get out of my boat. I am a sinful man. In the presence of holiness, your unholiness kind of is magnified, right? We tend to hang out with people like us. We don't want people coming that make us look so bad, right? Show our imperfections. Show all of our weaknesses. I was thinking of another example a couple of days ago. Here's a car example. And most of us have cars. You know, a few years, it's tough to get a new car now, right? Or even a used car. And most of us have cars. Our cars have issues, right? Well, I'm talking to a friend the other day. The friend announces to me that in this environment, he just bought a Ferrari. He quickly followed, but it's not a new Ferrari. You know, a Ferrari's a Ferrari, right? But I kind of got the last smile. He said he just took it in for an oil change. The oil change for his Ferrari was $1,400. I chuckled as I walked away. Yeah. Now, here's my guess. If you got like a Toyota or Ford, you don't hang out with Ferrari drivers, right? If you're a Bentley driver, you don't hang out with Chevy drivers, right? You hang All of a sudden, Jesus shows up. He's above, above. They've never met anybody like this before. His holiness, so different. They were afraid of the storm. They were terrified when Jesus showed up. You read the two other accounts, that becomes crystal clear. Well, right about now, you're thinking, well, you know, it's a little way after quarter after, it's Father's Day. We should end right. We can't end yet. Because if we ended with holy, deity, sovereign, that'd be a pretty good lesson, right? We'd have some good vocabulary words, understand? And we'd be sunk. There's one more word, and we need this one. Jesus is Savior. That's what the story tells us, isn't it? You see, along with the little phrase, I am, that's not all he said. He showed up and he said, I am, fear not. But those two pair of words can't go together. If he is, we better fear. If we're not going to fear, then he's not. How in the world can I am and fear not go together? If he is sovereign, and he is God, and he is perfectly holy, 
And the disciples are none of those things, and we're none of those things. How in the world can we fear not? We can't. In fact, it becomes crystal good. When you read through John, read through the bigger picture of John. As you read through John, even in John 6, at the end of it, you begin to see the storm clouds are beginning to gather. Everything starts out fine. Jesus healing people, preaching sermons that people like. They're being attracted. He's telling really cool stories. The storm clouds begin to gather. And as it goes on, the storm clouds begin to be really dark. And eventually the storm clouds let loose in a major storm that takes Jesus' life. But there's another set of storm clouds that are gathering that are kind of hinted at here. The storm clouds of sovereignty, deity, holiness. The storm clouds gather because God started this deal. He, as the author, gave us the script to live by. We ignored it, turned our back on it, went our own way. Well, accountability's coming. Talk about storm clouds, talk about fear. How in the world can he say fear not when those storm clouds are gathering? Because Jesus came to take the ultimate storm of God's wrath so that those that follow him will never have to. If there is no cross and there is no empty tomb, those two pair of words can't go together. I am fear not, they can't go together. But if the cross is real and the resurrection occurred, Jesus can announce to all of his followers, I am sovereign, God, holy, and I am Savior, therefore, you can fear not. There's another incident, and maybe sometime before the barbecue today or whatever you do, you may want to read the beginning section of Revelation chapter 1. John also wrote that. That happened years and years after Jesus walked on the water. We're told in that passage that John has been arrested and John has been sentenced to the island of Patmos, which was basically a prison island, put on the island. And while he was there, Jesus showed up and Jesus revealed to him things that he needed to tell the churches and tell us. And all of Revelation begins with a vision. John catches a glimpse of who Jesus is. Now here's John, who's been a Christian for decades. Maybe Jesus' best friend, a close follower through his life. He'd been a follower, taught other people. He'd known Jesus and followed him for decades. He catches a glimpse of sovereignty, deity, holiness. He immediately falls to the ground, quivering like jello dropped from the table. And the same Jesus reaches down and says, I am John. Fear not. 
Friend, you and I will one day be in that exact position that John was in in Revelation 1. And I don't care what your view is. I don't care what particulars you may believe about this or that. I know one thing. On that day when you catch a glimpse of Jesus' sovereignty, deity, holiness, you too will assume the position, and so will every other human being that John assumed in Revelation 1. And everyone will hear, I am. Only the followers of Jesus will hear, fear not. Ball's on our court, friends. That day may be a little late. It's not too late on this Father's Day. Maybe the wisest thing we can do on this Father's Day, for the first time or for the hundredth time, remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's the sovereign king of the universe. He's God himself, the author and the authority. He is perfectly holy. And we will be consumed in his presence except for the cross and resurrection. I am, fear not, can only go together because of what Jesus started that we get now to announce to the world. Let's pray. Father, in this uh, crazy little account about some disciples and fishermen that are scared to death because of a storm, And Jesus walks to the side of the boat, strolling through the waves. He announces to them, I am, that they don't have to fear because he has come to deliver them. Lord, may the vocabulary of that lesson not just be words on a page or concepts in our head. May those vocabulary pictures become spiritual realities in our lives that change how we live. Jesus calls us to be different, holy, as we follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.